A few weeks back, I preached under the same title of Jesus Christ's Enemies from chapter number 11, just that latter part of the passage which we read. Uh, but I didn't really go into too much detail into the chapter 12 and into that parable, which is perhaps well known by some here. It's a parable where Jesus Christ is very evidently and very publicly wanting to teach the people that are around him that the Pharisees, the chief priests from chapter 11, verse 27, the scribes and the elders that were there, that they were his enemies. There is a reference here to the minor prophets and to the prophets of old, those that we were mentioning back in even this, this afternoon as we were preaching uh, from the book of Zechariah and dealing with the history that is found there. There is something of a, a picture being developed, pointing back to their history, speaking again about their fathers. And every servant that was sent, look at the verse number 4 of chapter 12, again he sent unto them another servant, and at him they cast stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully handled. And it says, verse 5, And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating some and killing some. That's what the Jewish people, that's what Israel and Judah did with the prophets that were sent to them in the days of old. That was what their forefathers did. That is what those individuals that they were clinging to as the means of their salvation, because bear in mind the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the, the Pharisees and others like them, they were looking back to their heritage for their salvation. Their hope lay in the fact that their fathers were given promises. And they thought because of what had happened in the past, because simply of the fact that God had called them his people as a nation, that automatically that they would be saved. Brought into salvation, brought into a personal or close relationship with God, whatever terminology or phrases they may have used, they thought they were okay. They thought they were good. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were pleasing in the eyes of God. When in actual fact, God manifest in the flesh, looking on them with his very eyes, saw individuals that were wicked. Wicked. Yes, they were worshippers. And just to highlight the points that I gave that last time, these individuals, Christ's enemies, they were worshippers, they were wicked. But they were also warned in the passage that is before us. And he warns them in, in chapter 11 with a question. They're coming to him with this uh, a very strange audacity thinking that they know best, that they knew better than him, and that they were able to kind of trip him up in their questions. And they come to him with this idea, well, where do you get your authority from? As if they had the authority to ask that question. But we see within that there was an assumption in this false accusation, an assumption that he wasn't the Messiah, an assumption that they knew better, and that he was wrong, and that he was deserving of death and rejection from the people. We see that idea of him being put to death emphasized in our text even more so. They sought to lay hold of him. It wasn't just to maybe correct him. It wasn't just to redirect him as maybe some elder individuals might have to do with the younger at times to give us encouragement, to guide us in the way that we ought to go and to give us instruction, to chastise us at times. No, this was not what they were wanting to do. And even if that was what they were wanting to do, it would have been wrong. But they were wanting to lay hold of him to kill him. They desired his blood. They wanted nothing of his teachings. They disrespected him in every single way imaginable, publicly and privately, and they had a desire to do away with him altogether. So while they were the ones standing at the front, preaching, reading, prophesying, they might say, or presenting something of the law of God and the many add-ons which they had come up with, these were the very individuals that were missing the point entirely of the gospel. And I'm preaching on this a few weeks ago in terms of Jesus Christ's enemies. 
it has to be said as, as we go around our churches and as we, we preach in, in the Western world today especially, are we like these individuals, especially in conservative Christianity, especially in Reformed circles? You know, there are people outside of our denomination and they look at us as though we are Pharisees. And the question must be asked, are we? Are we any better than they at times? Bear in mind that these individuals, their forefathers, they pointed back to Abraham, they pointed back to Moses, they pointed back to Israel, to Jacob. They pointed back to the promises which God had given to their forefathers. And again, the same theme runs through from this morning. Do we just simply look back to them? Do we simply look back to our heritage? Do we look back to our upbringing? Do we look back to the days of of blessing and true days of revival when our denomination began? And do we think, well, we've grown up in the church. We've been catechized in Sunday school. We've went to children's meetings, youth fellowships. We've been part of outreach and evangelism here and there. We've married individuals from our denomination. We have brought up our children in the church. And now there are generations coming from after us that are following God, it seems, and at least outwardly doing that which is right. Again, the question must be asked, are we really any different from the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the elders, those individuals that Jesus Christ was against? Because we can look well. We can act well. On paper, we can believe that which is true and right. But what about the heart? The sad reality and the fact of of our own circumstances today in, in Northern Ireland... And in our denomination, and perhaps here tonight, there are generations of free Presbyterians that have thought they are okay simply because they walk through a free Presbyterian church door. And that might seem like an absurd thing. We came out of the apostasy. We left Romanism, so to speak. We want nothing to do with ecumenism. Yet, nonetheless, there is the apostasy of the heart, that desire within the soul to think, well, I know best. And it doesn't matter about our upbringing, that still same iniquitous nature resides within every single one of us, from the smallest child here to the oldest oldest person here. There's still the popery that lives within us. That must be put to death day by day, generation after generation. It doesn't matter what our forefathers did. It doesn't matter what gospel they preached if we do not hold to those same truths in our hearts. And the fact of the matter is, if we fall short of that principle, if we fall short of a a biblical understanding of the gospel, the reality is, we are, you are, an enemy of Jesus Christ. I wasn't going to look at these passages until later on, but turn with me uh, to a couple of verses, if I can find a little bit of paper here that I wrote these down. New Testament books over to Philippians. uh, Philippians near the back of your New Testament. And just to run a couple of verses by you in, in light of the idea of being God's enemy. Because again, I don't want you going home tonight hopeless. I don't want you going home tonight thinking that there is no hope for me. And no hope for a sinner, no hope for an individual that is born in sin and knows in your heart that you're not right with God. I don't want you going home thinking that there's no hope for such individuals as you, because there is. And the Gospels and the Epistles especially make this this very clear to us. In Philippians chapter 3, and the verse 
I'll read from verse number 17. It says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Verse 18 especially, it says this, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation or our livelihood, our, our action in society is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. He's teaching them to follow his, his teachings, to listen to the apostles' teachings, to follow in the scriptural principles that they were laying down as these men that were called of God to go forward and spread the gospel in the New Testament age. But he says there are those in the midst. There are individuals in the church. And he describes them as being the enemies of the cross. The enemies of Christ. You might say, well, there's not much hope in that. But there is, because verse 21 says that we have vile bodies that will be changed. And if you want to maybe have a bit more of an emphasis, flick over perhaps just a page in your Bible to Colossians and to the chapter number 1 there. And to the verse 19 it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, speaking of Christ, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, the cross which we were born enemies against, the cross which these individuals were preaching about were enemies to, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you, speaking to Christians now, you that are believers, you that are saved, you that are the church, that were sometimes alienated, separated, apart, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled, made peace with, brought together, unified in God, in Christ, he has reconciled those that once were alienated, those that once were enemies, in the body of his flesh through death. Verse 22. To present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. And it goes on, the sentence continues, just like Paul always has quite lengthy sentences. We'll stop there, otherwise I'll read the whole book of Colossians before the night's out. But the point is, I hope, clear to you. We are enemies. But there is hope for the enemies of God because of the gospel. There is hope for you, a sinner, tonight because of what Jesus Christ has done upon the cross. There is hope. There is salvation to the enemies of God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. His body, which was sacrificed upon the cross for sinners such as you. So as we're speaking and preaching upon the, the enemies of Jesus Christ tonight, and as we see their desires, we see their discernment, and we see their departure from the Lord, I want you to realize that that is, is their testimony. These individuals, as far as we can tell from Scripture, are in hell as I preach tonight. Thousands of years have passed. 
And these individuals, these enemies of Jesus Christ, have perished. They did not heed the warning of the gospel. They did not repent of their wicked ways. They did not run to Jesus Christ. They hated him. They despised him. And they rejected him. And ultimately they murdered him. And you might say to me here, preacher, I, I know I'm not a Christian. I know I just come to church because maybe mom and dad used to send me. Maybe there's something that tugs in my heart every single Sunday that, that lures me out to the house of God. Maybe you don't even know why you're here. You might say to me, preacher, I'm not a murderer. I don't hate the gospel. I'm a church, aren't I? You might say, preacher, I don't hate Jesus Christ. If I was there, I wouldn't have cried crucify him. And yet, every believer here knows full well in the heart of hearts, within our souls, if we were there, we would have said the very same thing. And if we didn't cry crucify, we would have run away from him like the disciples. Because we know, as Christians, that our hearts are deceitful. And that we think we know our hearts. We think we know where we stand to a degree. And you might think that you do not have blood on your hands because you were not there. But nonetheless, we are guilty. Guilty and vile sinners in the sight of a holy God tonight. And so you should be concerned. You should be worried. Worried about where you will spend eternity. Worried about what will happen after you take your final breath. The last point that we have this evening is their departure. Before we get to that last point, I trust that you realize that you don't know when your last opportunity will be. You might think, well, I'll hear what the preacher has to say. And give some thought and contemplation to the three points that he has, as most preachers do as they come to present God's word. They'll have a couple of points. I'll, I'll have a listen, see what comes from it, and maybe have a little think about it on the way home. Don't even wait until the end of the service. Don't presume. Do not presume that you'll be able to make it to the closing amen. I don't say that just to be some individual that comes along to fearmonger you into the, into the cross or into Christ or into the family of God. You might want to call it fearmongering. I don't really care what title you give it. There's a necessity for you to be terrified if you're outside of Christ. Call it fearmongering if you like. If that's what it takes for preachers as we come along to, to make you see your need, then I'll fearmonger everywhere I go. The sinners need to be ready to meet their God. These enemies may be slightly different to us because of culture, slightly different to us because of their upbringing, slightly different to us because of their outlook of life and their understanding of the, the Old Testament scriptures, because of their knowledge, their academia. They might be different in many ways, but nonetheless, 
The very core root of their problem is the same core root of your problem, and it is your sin, your heart. No matter what way it might look for you, nonetheless, your desires are not what they should be, just as their desires were not what they should be. Their desire was death, his death, his blood. And in many ways, this is one of the most bizarre things, yet the most completely understandable things of, the, of history itself. And that is a bit of a paradox, I know, but let me just unpack that a little bit for you. It's bizarre because these were the men that were blessed and privileged with looking into the face of the manifestation of God in this world. They saw him in the eye. They looked him in the eye. They witnessed him speak. They heard his voice. They heard and understood his accent. And they could, they could discern where parts in the, whereabouts in the country he was from. They, they knew so much more about his, his person that we could even understand here. Because they walked with him. They followed him. And as they followed him, they were like this, this shadow that constantly tried to get in his way and cause problems for him and his disciples. But they knew something about him. And I think it's a bizarre thing for us to put ourselves back 2,000 years ago to consider what it was to, to one day walk into your village and to hear rumors about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, coming in and standing in the, in the street preaching. Or sitting down on a rock in a, in a, in a grassy field with, with children on his knees, speaking about parables and stories about farmers in the field. And being able to go and listen. And to stand alongside and to, to hear the preacher of preachers, the prince of preachers, not Spurgeon, but the man himself, God manifest, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the prophet and the priest and the king that was promised to come into this world. They witnessed him. And is it not bizarre to think that as they witnessed this Christ, as they witnessed the Messiah with their very own eyes, heard him with their very own ears, reasoned, Together, after the service, but they still despised him. It's a strange thing. But it's completely understandable because, as we mentioned already, we know the heart of man is deceitful. There's many passages and things that we've turned to already that tells us that we are the enemies of God. But we looked at James uh, this morning, or this afternoon, and uh, I want to turn you back to James again, to the chapter number 1, just to see another uh, passage here. That, that really ties in with the whole picture of these Pharisees and these elders, the, the, the scribes and the priests that were here at this time. In verse 26 of James 1, it says, If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain, pure religion, and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. These men... They fall into that picture of verse 26. They seem to be religious. They didn't shut their mouths in the presence of Christ. Instead of doing that, they began to open their mouth and they began to ridicule and revile him. And it says there, verse 26, they have deceived their own hearts. And their religion was vain. These men, these enemies that are mentioned in this passage... While it is bizarre that they were able and privileged with witnessing Jesus Christ face to face, while that is bizarre, it is yet understandable because the heart of man is wicked, it is sinful. And you again might think, well, I'm not as bad as they are. I'm not, not made of the same ilk as they. But again, remind yourself of the scriptures that we were shaping in iniquity. 
our hearts, our being, was constructed and conceived in corruption. We are no different than the scribes and the Pharisees, by birth at least. And so it is understandable if there are those here tonight, while it is still bizarre in light of the scripture which has been revealed to us, in light of the preaching which you have heard throughout the entirety of your life perhaps, it is a bizarre thing in my mind for you to be sitting here in the house of God once again, to be listening in to a recording, to be watching in online, who knows, whatever way this is being broadcast, but for the, for the, for the sinner to sit And to hear the preaching of God's word, the gospel message being proclaimed, not just from my lips, but from the lips of many preachers in days gone by. It's bizarre to think that you're still outside of Christ. It's absolute madness. And yet you think that you're right. You think that somehow you know best and you know better than others around you and you know better than the scriptures than to give your life to Jesus Christ and you think that your desire, that your wills, that your plans, that your ambitions, that your heart is right. Whenever over and over again we find the example in scripture that it is wrong. It's falling to continue in sin. To go on as you are. Rejecting Jesus Christ. Our hearts are just like theirs. And trust here this evening that you'll know what it is to actually begin to question your own soul. It's easy to come to church, isn't it? And to, even as believers in the gospel service, to to listen as the gospel is being presented and to think about the person that you know that's maybe here that's outside of Christ. I don't even want you to do that. Yes, we want you to pray for them. We want you to desire their salvation, but don't come to church week after week, to evening service after evening service, to gospel evangelical preaching and listen to sermon after sermon after sermon for decades and decades and decades and then get to the end of your life and You realize you've never actually sat back and thought about your own soul. Maybe as a child you felt that terror of hell, wondering would you be there because of your sin. Maybe you felt that concern as a child and as a youth, and you you have made professions of faith, and, and yet you look back at your life and you wonder where is the fruit. I want you to wonder where is the fruit. You think back to other parables which Christ spoke and we think of the the seed being sown by the sower into different parts of the the field and into the ground that was hard and the ground that was good and and ready to to bear forth fruit. And we think of those, those little seeds that grew up quickly, speedily, with the weeds all around them perhaps, the sun beating down upon them. They lasted only but for a time. These are things that we should be weeping over. It doesn't matter what your position is, outwardly speaking, whether it's in the church or whatever way you want to look at it in society, how people view you, if people think you're a Christian or not. None of that matters. It doesn't matter if people think you are a Christian. What matters is, does God know you as his child? 
And I confess to you last night, thinking about these words, conviction came upon my own heart. You can stand in the pulpit iron and you can preach. You can go to Bible college for four years and study theology. You can call yourself a Christian. But will you be cast out? Will you be among the number that says, Lord, Lord, did I not prophesy and preach in your name? We should be concerned. You should be searching your heart. Every single one of us. And if you think that you are exempt from searching your heart in a gospel message, then perhaps that is a very true sign that you are a Pharisee. Their desire was selfish, was filled with pride. They were drunk with pride, thinking that they knew best. They thought they were right and he was wrong. They thought they were serving God, worshipping God, and he was a blasphemer. Yet he was God himself. Do you see the folly of where sin can lead you? Do you see the folly of the sinner's heart? These individuals, while they were foolish, while their heart had deceived them, there was still some level of discernment. And this is what really drew my attention to this passage. Again, I've been preaching through Mark anyhow, but whenever I was thinking about chapter 12, I thought we'll be breaking down the parable. And I've skipped over the parable almost altogether because this is the primary focus of that parable, is the individuals that he's speaking to. And it says there that, yes, they sought to lay hold of him. That was their desire. They feared the people. We know that they were a a bunch of cowards, really, ultimately speaking. But the middle part is, is a bit that really gripped me as I was looking at this again. For they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. They knew that he had spoken this parable, this sermon, against them. They knew. They knew and yet they still rejected. They knew and yet they still despised. They knew and yet they still sought to lay hold on him. They knew and yet they still cried crucify him. They knew that they were lost. They knew that they were in, in, in against this man. They knew that they were in, in his scope, so to speak, in this sermon. And perhaps you've known that in the past. Maybe you've listened to, to sermons. And I can remember at certain times in, in life, especially as a, a teen, being in services and, and really feeling the conviction of God as the, the minister preached. And then all of a sudden he changed his tune just like that and started to talk about the, the apostasy, apostasy down the street or some other church around the corner. And it's almost as though it the, the conviction that was there was, was sweeping away because, well, he's not talking about me. He's talking about somebody else now. So I can kind of rid myself of that conviction. Sometimes we're guilty of that as preachers. We begin to preach to people that aren't in front of us. Jesus Christ didn't do that. Jesus Christ didn't give them the opportunity to, as it were, push their convictions to the side. He made it very plain and clear to them, you are the wicked servants and husbandmen. You are the ones that were given the word of life. You are the ones that have despised. You are the ones that have misused it. You are the ones that have killed not only prophets that have come before, but you will now come and kill my son. It could not be any plainer and clearer. He was declaring to them that he is the very son of God, and yet they were going to kill him. And they discerned that that was his message to them. 
They understood that he wasn't speaking about some individual up the road or some poor peasant in the street and in the gutter. No, he was speaking to these individual men. And they understood that he was talking to them, confronting them. Do you here this evening know what it is to to feel that? To know that? That God is not just speaking about somebody like you, but speaking to you. We don't come to church to hear God speaking to other people. We come to church to hear God speaking to us. God is speaking to you tonight, and especially, I believe, to the sinner this evening. And I trust that you have discerned that. You have realized that and acknowledged that. But for them, their discernment was damnation. Damnable to them. It was damning to their souls because they discerned, but they, they, but then they did not do. They did not act. They did not confront their sin. Instead, they confronted him. And so there really are two options tonight. If you have discerned the voice of God speaking to you, warning you once again, it can either be something that will be used to draw you into his bosom, closer to the Lord, to bring you into his family, to what it is to be that little lamb or that little sheep brought in by the shepherd to the place of safety. Or it can mean damnation. I don't think we realize that as believers at times. We come to church and we maybe don't pray about the services in the week before. We don't take that, that burden upon our hearts to think that, that God is going to speak to an individual perhaps for the last time this Sunday. And we forget about it as Christians. Maybe you haven't thought about it as a sinner. But if you have discerned God speaking to you, confronting you, do not ignore it. Do not become complacent. Heed the preacher's application, and I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. If he is dealing with your heart, if he is confronting you about your sin, if he is beginning to awaken your conscience to your need, if you are beginning to listen and heed the, 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 the preacher of the heart, the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity, which has been promised to us to come into services such as this, to enable you to see the gospel in clarity, to see the blood of Jesus Christ which is shed for you, to see his life which is sacrificed in your behalf, if the Spirit of God is moving and doing that work tonight, which I cannot do, do not ignore him. Ignore me all you like. Fair enough. I am but a mere man. But whenever the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the conscience comes upon you, do not ignore it. Do not harden your heart. This preacher will leave. God willing, at the end of this service tonight, I'll head on home. You will leave as well. And that is to be expected. Maybe desired in some quarters. Quicker, sooner than later. Not so with the Spirit. Not so with the Spirit that preaches to the heart. Yet, nonetheless, the same thing could be true. You could go home. And he could go home. Departing never to meet again. Are you right with God tonight? Have you discerned his still small voice speaking to you? 
Do you desire to come to Christ for salvation? Or will your discernment lead to your damnation? We find in this passage that they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. Perhaps the most terrifying words have yet to be read again. And they left him and went their way. And they left him and went their way. We've seen that their desire was death. Their discernment was damning. But their departure, I struggled with this point for a while. Changing different words and ways that we could apply it. But if we really do think about it, no matter how hard we can be upon the Pharisees at times, and rightly so, they were wicked individuals that deserved everything they got and everything they're getting in hell, just like we deserved it. We can't really come to this passage and, and begin to, to have hearts that are warmed and, and worried in a sense because these were vile men that cried out for the destruction of our Lord. But again, if you put yourself in their position and remember that we are not very different from them. In fact, we are no different from them. If not, but for the grace of God. The only word I could come up with was devastating. Their departure was devastating. For all eternity, these individuals that left and went their way thought that their way was just going to bring them to their homes, to a pleasant experience of life. Who knows what even they believed about what happened after death or not, but their way to them seemed to be the best way, the right way, a good way, a peaceful way. Yet their way brought destruction. The sad irony of this passage is that in desiring his death, they sealed their own. I'm not just talking about physical perishing, but I'm talking about eternal damnation. As we conclude here tonight, as my Bible is closed, I do wonder... Is it now too late for you? Has the voice of God now been silenced? Will you ever hear him again? Will you have another opportunity to do business with him? It's okay that my voice will go silent. But God forbid that his will. Sinner, come to Christ tonight. Know what it is to call upon his name. I believe that he is here for the purpose of saving souls. I believe you are here with one more opportunity. I trust that you will take it. Let us bow together in his presence once again. And sinner, do take that opportunity now. Not to raise your hand or come to the front, but to go to God 
with your sin, with your guilt, and with your shame. He will deal with it upon the cross. His blood has been shed for sins such as yours. Praise God, there is cleansing for any sinner who believes, for anyone that would receive him, to simply call upon the name of the Lord, and you shall be saved. You left some butts about it. God is merciful. This is a day of grace. Perhaps this will be the day of salvation.